I'm Jonathan Bastian. This week on KCRW's Life Examines, therapy is trending. We'll discuss the destigmatization of mental health, greater media spotlight, TikTok videos, and the strange popularization of therapy lingo. All of these terms are kind of deal breakers on social media. If this person doesn't respect your boundary, or this person is gaslighting me, this person is toxic, that leads to cutting people off instead of learning how do we have conversations with people we're having some kind of challenging relationship with. And later, relationship red flags and evolving partnerships' roles and expectations. If somebody can't show up, if somebody can't have a hard conversation with you, if someone can't be respectful, if someone doesn't deal well with stress, these are all red flags because these are things you're going to encounter in the course of your lives together. Relationship expert and best-selling therapist Lori Gottlieb lifts the veil on therapy and pop psychology and why change and growth is so hard. That's coming up on Life Examined. Finding the perfect partner can be an elusive proposition. Attitudes on relationship roles have shifted over the last 30 years, and internet dating for the young and not so young allows for a broader search and an expansion of expectations. The task can be overwhelming. But finding a partner is only half the story. Maintaining a healthy relationship is the ultimate goal. And seeing a therapist before problems become deeply entrenched is one of the best ways to facilitate that. The good news is that even though couples therapy has been around for decades, the pandemic, along with greater awareness of mental health issues, has completely normalized the practice. And psychology and psychotherapy on podcasts like this one to the New York Times and YouTube videos is having a moment. Turns out getting advice actually works. More and more couples are communicating more effectively, learning greater accountability and recognizing that there are two narratives in every relationship. Psychotherapist and relationship expert Lori Gottlieb says it's hard to let go of our own stories. Change is even harder. We humans have a tendency to cling to the familiar and our core beliefs, even if they make us miserable. You may recognize Lori Gottlieb's name. In addition to her work as a therapist, she co-hosts the Dear Therapist podcast and writes Dear Therapist advice column for The Atlantic. She's also the author of Maybe You Should Talk to Someone and Marry Him, The Case for Settling for Mr. Good Enough. Well, Lori Gottlieb, it's great to have you on Life Examines. Welcome. Thanks so much for having me. I want to start with this big question because I feel like it's everywhere right now, which is I, I feel that therapy is, is like having its media moment right now, whether it's been, you know, huge profiles in the New Yorker, the New York Times, everybody talking about going to therapy, the, uh, the popularization of so many psychological terms that are thrown around on social media or everywhere. And I wonder for you, it, like if you take a step back and just look at what's happening right now as a therapist, as someone in the media, like where is this? profession right now? What do you think is happening around us? Well, I think it's going through a lot of change in terms of public perception, which I think is great. Um, You know, I think that there are some growing pains that come along with that. So I like that people are talking about therapy, that it doesn't have that stigma as much as it used to. Um, But I think that what's happening is people are having ideas about therapy that just don't reflect what therapy actually is. And I would say, especially on social media. Say more about that. What are some misconceptions? Well, I think you mentioned people throwing around therapy terms and they're just being misused on social media. And I think to people's detriment. So you see a lot Mm. of things like this person didn't respect my boundary and maybe they asked for something very unreasonable or they don't really understand what setting a boundary looks like, which is Mm. not what the other person does, but what you are going to do in response or people. There's a lot of cutting people off saying people are toxic And, you know, on social media, someone's presenting one side of something. And obviously there are difficult people out there. We always say before diagnosing someone with depression, make sure they aren't surrounded by right? Mm. So, (laughs) so, you know, of course there are difficult people, but I think what happens is there's a lot of, um, you know, people cutting people off, uh, people not really understanding the nuance of relationship and um, a lot of sort of me, me, me focus and not a relational focus. Ah, that's really interesting. I mean, we've done programs here on like family estrangement that have been really popular because it seems that we are living in a moment where it's a lot easier right now, it feels like, to, to cut people off, you know, to ghost them, to get them out of your life uh, as a means of like self-growth, as we often talk about, or as people like to say. But I think, like you said, it might be the me, me, me. Can, can you go on about that a little bit more? 
Yeah, I mean, I, I think that, first of all, some of the terms that get thrown around lead to estrangement. So this person mm. is gaslighting me. But maybe that person just has a different opinion than you do, and they don't necessarily agree with the way that you perceive the situation. And then the person says, well, I'm being gaslit. That's not what gaslighting is. So all of these terms, I think, are, are kind of deal breakers on social media. If this person doesn't respect your boundary, even though maybe they're not using the correct understanding of what a boundary is, or this person is gaslighting me, even though they're not actually gaslighting you. This person is toxic. That leads to people cutting people off instead of learning, how do we have conversations with people that we feel, you know, we're being, we're having some kind of challenging relationship with? And what is my role in that situation? In, in my book, I talk about the difference between idiot compassion and wise compassion. So Idiot compassion is what we tend to do both on social media and with our friends, which is they come and they say, listen to what my partner, my parent, my you know sibling did. And we say, yeah, you're right. They're wrong. That's awful. You go, girl. Right. Yeah. Um, but if you kind of listen to people over time and even sometimes as a friend, you can hear this. They might be telling a very similar story, maybe different circumstance, different people. But there's kind of a pattern going on. It's kind of like if a fight breaks out in every bar you're going to, maybe it's you. We mm. do not say that to our friends because we want to feel like we're being supportive. But in fact, we're not helping them see that, yes, maybe there is a problem with the other person, but also we're all doing a dance in a relationship. So what is your role doing this dance with this person? And when you come to therapy, what you get is you get wise compassion, where we hold up a mirror to you and we help you to see something about your role in a situation. That doesn't mean we're blaming you. It means we want you to see that life is relational. So what are you doing in this dynamic that maybe you haven't been willing or able to see? And do you have a way to change that? Because we all have agency and we can all make choices. So we want to empower people to make different choices. No, I really appreciate you saying that. And I find that, you know, one big question that a lot of people don't like to answer in therapy is, is when a therapist says something like, well, what's your part in this, right? Because I think that takes just a lot more complexity, a lot more nuance. You have to take responsibility for actions you may not be comfortable with. I'm, I'm sure that's a question you've had, you've posed to a lot of your clients. Yeah, and I, I think one way to get into that is to say, if the other person were here and they were telling their version of the story, what would that sound like? Mm. And if you can get to a place where they can hear part of, where there's, a, there's part of the Venn diagram that overlaps with their own version of the story, and you can start there, I think it's easier to get them into seeing maybe how they might be contributing to these interactions not going well. Again, it doesn't mean they're at fault. It doesn't mean they're to blame. It means that these are two people and there are two people feeling not heard, not seen, whatever's going on. And so, you know, how are you creating the dynamic that's not working? And then how can you do something different that maybe will influence the other person to do something different? I think a yeah. lot of people come to therapy saying, how can I change this other person? And I always say, you can't change another person, but you can influence another person by doing something different. Well, and, and also it seems that the thing that we actually do have power over is, is how we interact or how we decide to respond to people as well, right? Yes, absolutely. And I think that that's where when people run into difficulty, they say, well, I'm going to cut them out of my life as opposed to I'm going to try to understand how I can do something different here to see what's possible in this relationship. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I, I've seen this in some of my own clients. I mean, people want to come in and very often try and diagnose someone else in their life and say, well, isn't that person crazy? Right. And, and it's so hard, I think, to get clients or people to say like, we have no idea what's going on with them. We, all we know is what's happening right here between us. Do you, you know what I'm saying? Yes, of course. And, you know, often it's the other person, another term that's thrown around. The other person's a narcissist. Mm. Um, another big term on social media these days, I think. Yes, yeah. yes, absolutely. And, and I think, you know, what people tend to find is that 
what happens between the therapist and the client is a microcosm of what tends to happen between the client and people out in the world. Mm. So when that situation is recreated in the therapy room, it's a great opportunity to slow things down and say, hey, I'm noticing this. And let's talk about what's going on between us right now. I think a lot of people don't realize that therapy is a relationship in and of itself. And it's a very important relationship so that you have a safe space where you can slow things down and look at some of these ways that you interact or move through the world that are coming out in this relationship so you can change it in those outside relationships. One of the the big things you've been looking at in your writing is the extent to which we are all telling our own story consistently and we're editing it and we're coming up with a version that we like or we don't like, but either way, it's a version. Can you talk about why you think this is so important? And eventually I really want to get to the importance of freedom and change, which are two big pieces of the story. So I'll I'll kind of tee it up for you there. Yeah. Well, first of all, I think that the reality is we're all unreliable narrators. And I don't mean that we aren't telling the truth. What I mean is that we're telling the truth as we see it through our own subjective lens. Hmm. And you see this especially when you see couples that, you know, they've had a shared experience and yet they have very different versions of what actually occurred in that shared experience. And both are absolutely true from their perspective. And so when somebody comes in as an individual, I know that I'm only getting their version of events. And often we have our own stories that we've been carrying around for a very long time, probably since childhood. Um, You know, caregivers, parents, people who are influenced, uh, who influenced our lives, tell us stories about ourselves in various ways. And some of the stories that we might be walking around with are things like, I'm unlovable, or I can't trust anyone, or nothing ever works out for me. And then we walk through the world with those stories, and they affect our interactions on a daily basis and how we interact with other people too. And so I feel like because I was a writer before I was a therapist, and I'm still a writer, I feel like a lot of my job as a therapist is that I'm almost like an editor where people Mm. come in and they tell me a story and I'm helping them to tease out the faulty narrative. I'm helping them to rewrite their story so it more accurately reflects their lives now and not something from the past that is an inaccurate story that they've been carrying around and it really affects them in the present. Why do you think we fall into these like really simple narrative traps. And the way you describe that made me think about something, you know, in, in cognitive behavioral therapy called core beliefs, right? Which are just these like deeply held beliefs of who we think we are that have been, you know, guided by certain circumstances or environmental factors. Like what, what's the comfort of having these things in our lives? Well, this is sort of a paradox, which is that, you know, we, we always say even in relationships, we marry our unfinished business if we haven't processed it. And so I think that we tend to cling to the familiar. So how it serves us is it's what we know. And this is why change is so hard too, right? So changing a core belief is really hard. Changing something like a New Year's resolution is really hard because when you make a change, you go from something that you know to something that you don't know. And humans don't do well with uncertainty. We tend to be very, it causes a lot of anxiety. So we will stay in a situation, even if it makes us miserable, we will stay with a belief, even if it makes us miserable, if it feels familiar to us. And then sometimes what we do too, is we we cling to that belief. So for example, when we say we, we marry our unfinished business, we will find a partner who is exactly like someone who hurt us in the past, but they look different on the outside. So at first, our unconscious is really, really, or our subconscious is really, really drawn to this person. And then we say, oh my gosh, this person yells just like my parent did. This person has an addiction just like my parent did. But subconsciously we were thinking, this time I can master that situation. This time I will win. And you know, this is called repetition compulsion. And the reason that we do this is we're not aware of it and we're clinging to that old story. And we're thinking, but I'm going to win. The outcome of the story will be different this time. 
except mm. it never is. It just solidifies the old story. Like, see, I'm unworthy. Nothing ever works out for me. Um, you know, I can't get angry. I can't express my feelings, whatever your story is. And so I, I think that people, this is, I think what therapy does is it helps you to know, like, what are these stories that you're carrying around and are they accurate? In the way that you talk about about the way we edit stories, the two big themes that tend to come up, and, and you talked about them for a second there, are, are freedom and change and how you like to work with those. Can, can you go a little bit further into that? This is something that actually happened for me in my own therapy session. Um, when I was at my therapist, I was talking about something that happened in my life, and I kept repeating the same story over and over, week after week. And he finally said to me, my therapist, he said, you know, you remind me of this cartoon and it's of a prisoner shaking the bars, desperately trying to get out. But on the right and the left, it's open, no mm. bars. And I think that so many of us are like that, where we feel trapped by something, we're shaking the bars, but we don't realize that we have the freedom to walk around those bars, that it's actually open. And I think that what I came to realize is that the reason that we don't walk around those bars, or we, first of all, we don't see them, but even if we see them, we, we're not willing to walk around them, is because if we walk around those bars, we're actually free of the thing that we keep saying we're trapped by. And with freedom comes responsibility. That means that we are now responsible for our own well-being. We are now responsible for our own lives. And I think that that can be really scary. We can't blame that on someone else or something else anymore. Yes. I, I'm being reminded of when I was doing you know, group clinical work, other therapists talking about their cases. A, a therapist brought in a case where basically you know, a client for one year talked about the idea of breaking up with a partner, right? Like that was the entire content. And we were all waiting around with this, like, you know, on the edge of our seats, like, is this finally going to happen? And a year later, the client was like, no, I'd rather stay with what's familiar. And it, it's just amazing how that seems to recur over and over. You, do you have clients in which that was a similar conversation? Yeah. Actually, in my book, there's a woman who, a young woman in her 20s, and she keeps dating men who are going to disappoint her in the ways that her parents had disappointed her. And then if she goes out with somebody who is available and, you know, is someone who wants all the same things she wants and is, and is an attractive person, an interesting person, all those things, she'd come back and say, yeah, I just, I don't know, like had a good time, but no chemistry. Huh. And, and that chemistry is that, is that rush of familiarity. Again, it's like, it's what, you know, it's like you're, it's in your body. And if you don't process that, you're just going to keep repeating the same thing over and over. And she, spoiler <laughs> for those who haven't read the book, but you know, she eventually breaks free of that, but it does take a lot of time to do that because you have to get comfortable with that change. And, and again, people think change is like, I make a decision and then I change. That's not true. I talk about the stages of change in my book and it starts with pre-contemplation where you don't even know that you're thinking about making a change. And then contemplation, where you're thinking about making a change, but you're not ready yet. And that's usually when people land in therapy right then. Like something has to change and they're not quite ready to do it, but they know that something has to change. And then there's preparation where you start taking steps to make the change. And then there's action where people actually make the change. And the big mistake people make is that they think that change ends at action. And this is like New Year's resolution, right? Like I'm going to exercise or I'm going to change jobs finally, or I'm going to get out of that relationship, whatever it is. And that is not the last stage. The, most, the last and the most important stage is maintenance, which is how do you maintain that change? And a big misconception people have about that is that you're going to either be successful or you're not. So people will say like, oh, look, I was supposed to exercise and I didn't, so I failed. And it's no, it's kind of maintenance is like shoots and ladders. You're gonna, you're gonna you know, fall back. That's built into maintenance. And I think that when you fall back, you just get back on track the next day. And I think that, you know, it's like, oh, I was going to break up with this person, but oh no, I called them. That's okay. That doesn't mean you have to get back into a relationship with them. It means you called them, that happened, and now you're clear again, I don't want to be with this person. 
So I think that people need to have a lot of self-compassion when they're in the maintenance phase. And people think, well, if I have a lot of self-compassion, I won't be accountable. That they, they can't hold both the accountability and responsibility with being kind to themselves. And what they don't realize is if you self-flagellate, if you tell yourself, you know, I'm awful, I can't do this, look how weak I am, that's not gonna help you make the change. What's gonna help you make the change is to say, look, this happened, let me think about what was going on for me that caused this to happen so that I can avoid this. And I'm, I'm human and I'm gonna get back on track tomorrow. Yeah, yeah, thank you for going through those. Those are actually really helpful. And I'm always amazed, and you mentioned this a moment ago, which is you know the fear around stepping into freedom. And th there was this, this quote by Beryl Markham that, that came to my mind. And it, it, she goes, while the future lives in a cloud formidable from a distance, the cloud clears as you enter it. I've learned this, but like everyone, I learned it late. And I, I love that because in a sense, we're so scared to step into the unknown, but I don't know about you, but every time I've been forced to do this, I'm amazed at like the resiliency in the adaptation we all have to kind of be with it and how things start to make sense once you allow yourself to enter it fully. D does that resonate with you at all? Yes, absolutely. That's such a beautiful quote. And I think it captures so much of our experience as humans. And I, I think that so many people um, don't even step into the cloud, partly because of that fear of uncertainty, but also because they don't believe that they deserve something better. Mm. That there's this deep-seated belief, I, I can't have that, or I'm not good enough, or I don't deserve that. And again, it's outside of their awareness. So people will have all kinds of logistical excuses, like, I can't take that job because look at the commute. Right. Um, yeah, you know, right, so there are all right. kinds of other reasons that they can't kind of step into the cloud. And once we start to see that actually you can, I think, you know, people find people usually ask themselves the question, why did I wait so long? I think it's really important that we're aware of our mortality. So a lot of people spend so much time wasting so much time because they're in denial about the fact that we're all gonna die someday. You know, that life has a 100% mortality rate and that's not just for other people. And people say, well, that sounds very morbid. Why, you know, that sounds depressing. But I think it's actually very empowering. I think to know that we have a limited time here, not to obsess about death, but to just have an awareness of it, makes people want to take action much more quickly than they otherwise would. And I bring that into the therapy room a lot. We talk a lot about, you know, if you were writing your obituary, what would it be? What would you like it to be? And, yeah. and I think that that really motivates people to say, I don't have forever. This makes me think of a story in your book. It was about a young woman um, who was newly married, but then um, when she returns from her honeymoon, she thought that she was pregnant, but it was actually a, an indication that she had breast cancer. This was this was a client that had a really big impact on you. Can you just share a little bit about that, that story and that client? Yeah, so um, in the book, I call her Julie, and she was this young woman who had just gotten married uh, on her honeymoon, as you said. She she felt something strange in her breast. She thought she was pregnant, turned out to be breast cancer. And then later on, it turned out to be um, a, a kind of breast cancer that they weren't able to cure. And she was this person who really dealt with death head on where, you know, it wasn't all of the bromide. She hated the whole like pink ribbons and the, you know, affirmations. And she said like, I need to live my life in the reality of my life, which meant that she could experience joy and she could also experience terror. And I think that hers was kind of like a, an exaggerated way in which we all should really go through life, which is she was feeling it all, she was experiencing it all. And there were things like where people said, you know, if you only have this, this much time left to live, maybe you should go, you know, all of these things that people think they're going to want to do if they have a limited mm. time left. And she was like, you know, they were like, why would you want to be on Twitter? And she was like, I like Twitter. <laughs> <You know? laughs> like, yeah. like, I like this show that I'm watching. You know, these are things that bring me joy. And it was the little things. 
And I think that that's what people discover is it's those little moments. It's the people in your life. It's the connections. It's not these big grand things that everyone's always striving for. And we shouldn't need a death sentence. Well, we all have a death sentence, actually, but we're not aware of it. But we shouldn't need a cancer diagnosis um, like hers to be aware of those things, to really prioritize what's important in our lives and to be intentional when we wake up every day about what matters to us. Mm. Yeah, what kind of an impact did this client have on you? And, and if I'm allowed to ask, is it, did she eventually pass away or still with us? What? How did the story end? Yeah, she eventually did pass away. And, um, you know, and I tell the story in the book of um, going to her, her, fun- her celebration of life, she called it. She had planned the whole thing. So she had planned how everything would go. And in one sense, it gave her a sense of control, but it was also her personality. And she, And by the way, she was not one of these people, I think people tend to look at people, you know, oh, she has a terminal cancer diagnosis. She's a saint, right? She hated mm. that. She was not. She was, she was, you know, she, she acted out in certain ways. She was just very, very human. And um, the conversations that she had with her husband were so beautiful. There was one night where they got into this fight where, um, you know, she was always researching, uh, you know, other treatments or experimental treatments. And he was watching a show and she came in and was telling him about something. And he said, can't, can't I just have one night off from cancer? And she got so angry with him and she said, I don't get any nights off from cancer. And they got into a fight about it and he came and apologized. But then she came to session and she said to me, I haven't been thinking about him and what this is like for him as this young person who just got married and he's losing his wife. Mm -hmm. And all of our friends are like, you know, having babies and moving on with their lives and going through all the things that he thought he was going to go through. And we're in this other world almost. And so it, it brought them so much closer to be able to talk honestly about what this was doing for each of them. And I think so many times the person who's sort of the caregiver in these situations isn't allowed to have feelings. And it was beautiful to see the two of them really bring their whole selves into their marriage and make this marriage what they wanted it to be for the time that they had. Hmm. No, it's it's such a powerful story, right? And it, it you can't help but think like how how do we all occasionally bring some level of urgency into our lives where things can just feel so mundane on the day to day and we can just kind of sleepwalk through things? Like how do we how, how do you wake up? How do you, you know, find a little bit of fire at times where it seems to be utterly lacking every day? I think we feel urgency around the wrong things. So we feel urgency around the things that actually don't have meaning for us. Ultimately, mm-hmm. Julie in the book was talking about legacy and she was so young. And ultimately what we decided was legacy is what people remember of how you were with them, their experience mm-hmm. of you. So do they remember harsh words or do they remember kind words? What do they remember of you? Do they remember that you had a vitality or a passion for something? Or do they remember that you were too afraid to really put yourself out there in the world? What do people remember about how you move through the world? That's your legacy. How did you move through the world on a daily basis? And I think if we thought more about that, we would live with more intention. Agreed. And, you know, as I, as I still sit here processing that, that story of your client, Julie, I think there's also this idea that, um, you know, here she was in truly a life and death situation, oftentimes wrapped up in her own story, but we all do that all the time, right? I mean, that's like how we walk through the day as well. And, And then there was that beautiful shift, which is like, well, then how do I recognize the other reality next to me and the other perspective next to me, which is something that you've talked about is so beautiful about couples therapy. But like, how else do we do that? Like, it, it, to me, it's almost like this, this empathic imagination that takes some effort and time, but it seems to be so crucial to just how we interrelate with people. Yeah, well, I think we need to get rid of this hierarchy of pain that we tend to use without even realizing it. So mm. often, you know, when you're experiencing something, we think that it's higher on the hierarchy than whatever the person that we're interacting right. with is experiencing. Right. Yeah. Um, you see this a lot, 
you know, with couples like, well, I had the kids all day. Well, I had to work 14 hours. Well, I this, uh -huh. well, I that, as opposed to, oh, wow, I wonder what it was like for you too. Like, yes, I, I'm having a difficult time and tell me about your difficult time. And I think what it takes is curiosity that instead of putting things on this hierarchy of pain and somehow you come out ahead, it's let's not compete. Pain is not a competition. You know, we do that even like with, with Julie and her husband, it was like, well, I have cancer, so my yeah. feelings trump yours. But then she realized, actually, they don't. So I think that that's really important is to say, I'm really curious about your experience. Tell me about what you're experiencing. And that in turn will make the other person curious about your experience too. Because once we feel seen and heard, then we don't feel the need to kind of shove our experience down somebody else's throat. Now we feel like, oh, there's space between us now. There's space here for both of our experiences. And I think that so many times we forget to be curious about, you know, we make all kinds of assumptions. So we think we already know and we don't need to be curious because we think, I know exactly why that person's saying this. I know exactly why they did that. But you might not. So start from a place of curiosity. Yeah. And it really does strike me more and more how unhelpful, like tools, the, the kind of self-talk of, I'm having a day, I'm having a bad day, but there are children dying in Africa of starvation, right? Like that, that makes logical sense. And we think it should work to trigger a response of like, wow, how lucky I, I can, you know, I can feel gratitude, but is it just me or does that not actually work very well? What, what do you, what do you think? <laughs> well, actually there's, there's a way in which people do that so that they, they minimize their own experience. So it's kind of the mm. opposite where I think that a lot of people with, especially mental health will say, um, you know, yeah, I'm feeling sad or I'm feeling a little bit anxious or I'm having trouble in this relationship, but it's not that bad compared to whatever, because I yeah. have a roof over my head and food on the table and I have social support. So they don't come to therapy when they really need it. And we don't do that with our physical health. And I'm, I'm using this construct, by the way, mental health and physical health as if they're different and they're not, it's all health. But we tend to use that construct and we say, well, if I fall down and I break my arm, I'm going to go to the emergency room, even though somebody else might have, you know, a terminal illness. We don't use that hierarchy. We still say, I'm going to go get a cast for my arm. Yeah. But when we're having like, you know, like, you know, the emotional fracture, we wait until the thing is totally broken before we go and get help. And I think that that's really detrimental because what happens is, first of all, you've suffered unnecessarily sometimes for months or years. And also when you come in, you're now, things have gotten worse and you're in crisis and we've got to get you back to baseline so that then we can deal with the original thing that got you into this place in the first place. Mm. And so I just wish that people would understand that health is health and that there isn't a hierarchy of pain. You know, we use it in a different way in, in couples or in relationships where we say my pain is more important. But when it comes to coming to therapy, we tend, we tend to say my pain isn't as important as something else out there. I think it's a really, a really important point. And, you know, I, I've seen this working with clients that, that even socioeconomics almost have very little to do with this at times. Like I, I've seen people come into the room of incredible means or no means, but the stories they tell of suffering or, you know, people that have really gone through very serious things, like it exists all across the spectrum. Do you, do, right? I mean, do you see that too? I think there's this thought sometimes that, you know, certain life circumstances can shield people from hard experiences. And that's true to a certain point, but, but not always. Absolutely. Yes. This is not a socioeconomic issue. And I think our health, it, when it comes to our health, it's really important that people realize that, that just because you have something, you know, that you have the roof over your head and you have the food on the table, that doesn't mean that you're immune from emotional difficulty. And, and I think that when we think about our health, it's, you know, and, and by the way, and I do see that with in the other way where people don't have socioeconomic stability and they also do that hierarchy with themselves and they also don't come to therapy because there's um, something in the culture that says like, you have to really, really, really be suffering before yeah. you go get mental health assistance, right? 
And, and, and also just even that word mental health, it sounds like there's some shame around that as opposed to just thinking it's our emotional health or just it's our health. And if you're just joining us, my guest this hour is Lori Gottlieb. She's a psychotherapist and best-selling author of Maybe You Should Talk to Someone. She also co-hosts a podcast and writes an advice column in The Atlantic Magazine. And now we'd love to hear from you on our Facebook page. How do you feel about the popularization of psychology terms on TikTok or Twitter or social media? Do you think words like boundaries, gaslighting, narcissism, and all these different terms we throw around loosely are helpful to the conversation around mental health? You can find a link to the group at kcrw.com slash lifeexamined or by searching in Facebook for Life Examined. I'm Jonathan Bastian. We'll be back with part two of our conversation with therapist Lori Gottlieb after this short break. Stay with us. Introducing the KCRW Donation Car, designed to be recycled. This first-of-its-kind vehicle will save you time, space, and hassle by disappearing. Enjoy the luxury and comfort of turning your underused car into a donation worth hundreds, even thousands of dollars. The KCRW Donation Car, already in your garage, driveway, or on cinder blocks outside your house. Act now at kcrw.com cars. I'm Jonathan Bastian, back with Life Examined on KCRW. Welcome. My guest this hour is Lori Gottlieb, a longtime relationship therapist whose TED Talk and podcasts are available on YouTube. She's also the author of numerous books, including Maybe You Should Talk to Someone and Marry Him, The Case for Settling for Mr. Good Enough. In the first half of the show, Gottlieb explained that a therapist's role is not to tell you what to do, rather to hold up a mirror and to help you see your role in the relationship. As we return to the conversation, I asked Gottlieb about the impact of evolving relationship roles and expanded expectations. Also, things like betrayal, trust, and red flags. What really kills a relationship? All right, let's dive back in. I want to now just spend a, a little bit of time going back to something you wrote quite a bit earlier. It's called Marry Him, The Case for Settling for Mr. Good Enough. And I think, you know, this was a book I saw, I remember, you know, toted around for years by people that were in, you know, the maelstrom of figuring out whether or not a marriage was working, a person was working, whether or not they should pursue someone. And I think it gets to really, really big, important ideas that we're all still sitting with, which is, what do we ask of a partner? What do we ask of ourselves? Can you talk a little bit about what you were getting at there? And if you feel these ideas are, are still with us, my, my, my sense is that they're everywhere still. Yeah, absolutely. I, I didn't choose the title. So the, the book is not about settling. Um, and But I think that the point of the book is that in our culture, we are taught to look for certain qualities when we're dating that aren't actually the qualities that predict what is going to lead to a happy, um, connected marriage. And Mm. the book is not saying everybody needs to get married because they don't, or everybody wants to get married because they don't. It's saying if you are looking for a a life partner, um, here's what we really, here's what the research says you really need to be looking for. And I think that so many times people think, oh, you're asking me to lower my standards. And I'm saying, no, I'm asking you to raise your standards, but Mm. about certain things. So lower your standards about things that don't matter, but raise your standards about the things that do matter. And an example of that might be, you know, somebody will come into therapy and they'll say, I don't understand why this person, you know, they said they were going to show up for my birthday and they didn't, or they said they were going to call, but they didn't, or this person, you know, is, is really unable to have these conversations with me, or every time I try to have a conversation, they go back to text or whatever it is. And those are the, the qualities that, you know, do you really want to live with that for the rest of your life? But at the same time, they'll say, oh, but I'm so in love with this person. Oh, I really, I don't understand why this person doesn't want to be with me in the way that I want to be with them. And usually that person, either they don't want to be with you in the way you want to be with them, or they really don't know how to be in relationship. And when you have conversations with them, they don't take well to those conversations and they don't know how to communicate or they're not looking for the same things or you have different values or you have different ideas about what your futures are going to look like. And people ignore that all the time and they spend years with people who are not going to be good partners for them. 
and waste a lot of time. So what the book is about, it's about how to look for the qualities that matter, the character qualities, the values, um, you know, what are the things that you should be looking for very early in a relationship? We, we, you know, I have this podcast, Dear Therapist, where we do sessions with people. And so often people will come on and they'll say, you know, this has been this pattern going on in the relationship. And we always like to say that, um, you know, relationships are like cement. So what happens in the beginning of a relationship, there's maybe some flexibility around how you interact and, and what you can ask for. But if you don't set up those patterns early in the relationship, like cement, it dries very fast. And once it dries, it's very hard to change. You know, it's like, it's very solid, those patterns. And so people will get into these relationships where these, these, they don't ask for what they need. They're, they're not really open about what they truly want. And then they are in these, you know, kind of cemented relationships. And then they try to preserve the relationship or they try to change the relationship when it's too late. It's not the right relationship and it's not going to change. So the book is really about how not to get in that situation and how to start looking for the things that really do matter based on scientific research and not based on, you know, the women's magazines. This is, a, I think, a really, really interesting point about how much stock we put into some of these early interactions, right? Because love is kind of like being on some kind of a drug trip anyway in the beginning, right? It's like you're in this utterly altered state. So it's sometimes it seems hard to really make sense when you're in this kind of infatuation place. But spend a little bit more time, I mean, for those that are thinking about new relationships or new relationships they're in, I mean, that patterns emerge a lot faster than we might think. And we don't want to get into a situation where we're like, oh, it's, there's a pattern, but I think I can change this eventually. I'm working on it. That, that's probably not where you want to be. No, not at all. Um, you know, I, I think that when people go into relationships, they're projecting onto the other person what they want that person to be. So they tend to overlook a lot of red flags. And I think that that's really, it's really important that you can sit with it. You can say, okay, here's, here's a red flag. Let me try to understand what this means. So maybe I'll talk to the person about it. Maybe mm. I'll talk to my therapist about it, um, but I'm not going to ignore it. I'm going to kind of put that there with all this other great stuff that's happening. And then I'm going to decide what to do about it and how to communicate about it to this new person that I'm getting to know. So I'm not just projecting this idealized version of what I hope this person is onto this person when that's not really who they are. And, and yeah. I think another thing that comes up, by the way, is that people, which I, one thing that I think is great with the younger generation is that they are really expanding their definitions of sort of like, you know, what gender roles are supposed to be in a relationship. And I think though that a lot of women in particular, and I'm talking about in heterosexual couples, even though I see all kinds of couples, are really having trouble squaring what they want in terms of an egalitarian relationship and what that actually means. So an example of that is when I see couples Often, you know, if it is a heterosexual couple, the woman will be the person saying to the guy, you know, I really want to feel closer to you. I want you to open up to me. I want to really understand your inner life. And right there on my couch, he will open up to her. And maybe he might tear up or start crying. And inevitably, some version of this happens. She will look at me like a deer in headlights. And what will come out is, I don't feel safe when he doesn't open up to me because I don't, I don't feel connected to him, but I don't feel safe when he's crying in front of me either. Huh. So there's this kind of, you know, confusion around, you know, what do we want in a partner? What does that look like? What does emotional intimacy look like? And we still have all of these outdated views of what masculinity is like, what femininity is like, what the roles are in a relationship. And I think that on the one hand, young people are saying, wait a minute, we need to upend those because they don't really help us. But on the other hand, they haven't really gotten there yet. So I think early on, you know, like people all the time, people will say, oh, you know, he was really vulnerable with me and that, I don't know, maybe he's kind of needy. And I will say, really, is he needy or is he just kind of evolved and talking to you about his life? Hmm. This is a really, I think, fascinating 
idea about also where where we're heading in terms of gender fluidity, how this could change relationships for younger folks moving forward. And, you know, I, I remember seeing, you know, really beautiful studies and articles about, you know, the importance in same-sex couples about how it can feel a little bit more egalitarian in terms of things are split up and there was not these designations of you're supposed to do this and I'm supposed to do that. I mean, it seems like there, there's something to learn from all of these different types of relationships out there. Yes, yes. And I definitely see that. I definitely see that there that in same-sex couples, they, they don't have these same kind of issues. Um, you know, they have other issues that, that all of us have. But I think that the the issues that they don't have are you are supposed to be this way because this is this is what a man or a woman or, you know, whatever, however you identify, this is how you're supposed to be. There's no you're, this is how you're supposed to be. Yeah. You mentioned like just red flags to look out for. Like what are certain things that we should just keep being aware of when we're entering into new relationships? Well, if, if you look at studies, the, the number one predictor of whether somebody is going to be a good partner is emotional stability. And, and the number two, by the way, is flexibility. So mm. you don't want to be with a very rigid partner and you want to be with someone who's emotionally stable. This may sound incredibly obvious, but at the same time, look at your friends when they get into a new relationship and listen to what they say sometimes, right? Like, yeah, this person is, um, you know, clinically depressed and they're not getting help for it, but Mm. it's okay because I understand, or I'm there for them, or I'm going to help them get help. And I think that to start a relationship that way is really dangerous, especially if the other person is not willing to to really take ownership of their mental health and to say, yes, I am going to go see someone about this, or I'm going to go see about medication, whatever they might need to do. Um, you know, somebody who, um, has some kind of addiction, people think, oh, it's not that bad, or they minimize it. You're going to be living with this and it will be that bad. Um, you know, red flags in terms of how they treat you, do they tell you the truth? all the time, not most of the time, not 99% of the time, but do they tell you the truth? I had this couple where he would lie about little things all the time because he didn't want his partner to get upset with him. So they were just these tiny lies like, oh yeah, I I didn't pick up toilet paper because they were out of it. I went and they were out of it. no, actually, um, I stayed at work late, but actually like the person wanted to go to the gym, but they were afraid to tell their partner that they actually wanted to go to the gym. And this would infuriate his partner. And so we talked about what would happen if you were just honest with her, even if she was frustrated with you, what would happen? And so one day, and he would lie about things like, oh, I didn't get the organic strawberries for a kid because they didn't have them, but he just, he just didn't want to go to the market that had the organic strawberries because it was farther away. So one day he came home and he didn't have what he was supposed to get. And he just said to her, I, I forgot. And that was the truth. And she just started crying and said, thank you for telling me the truth. Wow. Thank you for telling me the truth. If you can't trust what the other person says, that is a huge red flag. So trust is, is, you know, people say this all the time, but I think that trust isn't just about whether, you know, people think about infidelity when they think about that. There are a million other ways we can betray our partners that have nothing to do with another romantic partner. It's about the little lies. It's about, um, you know, the ways that we, we don't see them, we don't listen to them, we don't hear them. So if somebody can't show up, if somebody can't have a hard conversation with you, if someone can't be respectful when you're having hard conversations, if someone doesn't deal well with stress, these are all red flags because these are things you're going to encounter in the course of your lives together. Mm. And it, it strikes me that so many of us that are in, you know, securely attached relationships in a place that feel healthy, that... It, it can be over time also so easy to dismiss and forget about some of these things because you just get them. You're filled with them all the time. And I think to me, one of the great struggles of this is is reminding ourselves that if one gets that, that's enough. You're lucky to have it. You maybe don't need 10,000 other things sprinkled on top, right? Like the core is so fundamental and also easy to overlook. 
I think so often what happens is people say, I, you know, this person, this person's boring, right? Like, like this is boring. And I always say like, if you think the other person is boring, maybe look at yourself. Have you become boring? And so often they'll say, oh, maybe I have. They hadn't thought about that. I think that we expect so much from our partner. We expect them to kind of be the person who makes us happy. And nobody can do that for you. You have to be the person that makes you happy. And the other person has to be the person that makes them happy. And then you two come together as people who are people who are satisfied in life people who find ways to keep things exciting for yourselves. And then you bring that into the relationship. But when you rely on your partner to be that person for you, that's when people get into dangerous territory. So whenever someone says to me, like, I think my partner, I think this marriage is boring, or I think my partner's boring. I'll say, have you gotten boring? Hmm. And it's a great question to ask yourself. What are the ways yeah. you've gotten into these patterns that are, you know, that where you're not going outside your comfort zone, you're not growing in any way? Well, as we begin to to wrap up this conversation, I I'm always interested in asking therapists, maybe because I ask myself this, like, you know, you you're in this amazing position where you get an opportunity to write, you see the research, you work with couples, and I think it's important to recognize that like even if therapists have tools, they themselves are not always like a 10 out of 10 happy every single day. And that's easily projected maybe on someone like you, like Lori's got to understand everything. I bet she's amazing. She has a great, she's happy every day. How do you answer that at this phase of your life? You know, being so involved in this type of work, but also reflecting on how you feel throughout the day, how you try and interweave these different tools and tips into your life. I think that somebody who doesn't know what struggle is probably isn't going to be a great therapist. And I just means that they're not human. And I think we have this idea of the therapist is almost like the brick wall where, you know, that's the sort of old version where you come in, you talk and they, they kind of know it all and they'll kind of sprinkle in a comment. So I think that anybody who's training to be a therapist or is a therapist, I think that the best therapists are people who are very aware that we're not the experts up on high. Yes, we have training, we know what we're doing. Um, We're using our expertise in the room, but we're using our humanity most of all. Well, it's been so wonderful to chat with psychotherapist and author of Maybe You Should Talk to Someone and also the co-host of Dear Therapist podcast, also the author of Marry Him and so many other wonderful talks and and, and advice columns. Uh, Lori Gottlieb, thank you so much for spending this time with us on KCRW. Really, really enjoyed it. Thank you. Oh, well, thank you so much for the conversation. I really enjoyed it. That's it for this week. The producer of Life Examined is Andrea Brody. And as always, we'd love to keep this conversation going on our Facebook page. How do the things that Lori Gottlieb said in this interview land with you? Are there any takeaways for your relationship or prospective relationships? You can find a link to the group at kcrw.com slash lifeexamined or by searching online in Facebook for Life Examined. You can also connect with me directly on Instagram. I'm at Jonathan W. Bastion. Thanks as always for joining us on Life Examined. Have a wonderful week and we'll see you soon. Take care.